Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Marion Tupi, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a Washington-based think tank, and editor of humanprogress.org, a website dedicated to understanding and tracking human progress over the centuries. He's also the co-author of the fascinating new book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet, which challenges the old Malthusian idea that the global population is going to overrun the world's resources. Marion, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for those kind words, and thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Your work at Human Progress, and now the book, stands in stark contrast with the popular discourse about decline, disorder, and stagnation in modern society. You are a rejection of this kind of doomerism, or what Donald Trump referred to as American carnage in his dark inaugural address. Let's start with a two-part question. One, what do you attribute your own personal optimism to? And two, why have so many of the rest of us come to interpret the state of modern life in pessimistic terms? Well, with regard to the first question, I think part of it probably rests in my personal history. I grew up behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe under communism. And uh, when the wall came down, you know, me and my family, we went to the West for the first time just for a visit. And then we moved around. I went to South Africa, then I went to Britain and I ended up in the United States. And obviously I was just flabbergasted by the amount of development, economic development, goods, services that Western developed countries are able to provide their citizens. I was amazed by uh, the health and the and and the happy attitude of Westerners compared to what we had in Eastern Europe. You know, the smiling faces, and 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 things like that. So basically, having now lived in in four distinct cultures, um, if you are at all curious, and I hope I am at least to some extent, you cannot but start wondering about what is it that makes some countries better than others? Why is life in some places better than elsewhere? Why are some people richer than than others? And that leads you, obviously, toward exploration of history, political history, economic history, trying to comprehend what is it that makes the West special. And that led me to basically zeroing in, along with many other scholars, on the 18th century and the fundamental break that 18th century posed with, with, with the past, the rise of the Enlightenment, the rise of European liberalism, 
as it as it as it resulted in tremendous economic growth in Western Europe and then later in Western offshoots, namely Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand. And then later in other parts of the world as well. I mean, one of the great things to see in the world today is that over the past 40 years or so, the era of globalization, which is so much maligned, the rest of the world is finally catching up with the West. The, the massive gap which had opened up between the West and the rest in the 1800s is beginning to close. And it's beginning to close at a rapid pace as countries like India and China and Bangladesh and other countries are growing at very fast pace. And so life is beginning to get better throughout the world. And, uh, and throughout the world, people are living better lives than ever before in human history. Why are human beings not appreciative of that? Partly, I think it is because humans have evolved to be pessimistic rather than optimistic. I mean, until 200 years ago or so, the world was much less hospitable, much less friendly, much more violent and so forth. And uh, I think that uh, the, the optimists probably got weeded out of the gene pool at a, at a much quicker pace than people who saw danger at, at every corner. You know, Steven Pinker and other people have discussed variety of negativity biases that people have in their brains. We can go to some of them. One is the availability heuristic, which is to say that uh, the more traumatic a memory, the more likely it is to appear in your mind. So people are much more concerned about terrorist attacks than, for example, dying in a car crash, whereas the second is much more dangerous than the first. Bad is stronger than good. We feel bad news or bad things uh, at a, at, with greater intensity than good things and good news. Good things happen on a on a on a in in a gradual way. They happen incrementally, whereas bad things happen instantaneously. You know, it may take years to build the World Trade Center, but it takes hours to tear it down in a terrorist attack. So. For a variety of reasons, through evolution, we have ended up with a software package in our hand, in our heads, that makes us constantly zero in on the bad news rather than the good news, and um, and that is a problem when it is combined with huge polarization, political polar polarization, both in the United States, but we see it in Canada and elsewhere, because essentially at this particular jun juncture in history. We don't have a single political party or a movement being committed to optimism, to a positive vision of the future. When Republicans are in charge, Democrats saying that everything is bad. When Democrats are in charge, Republicans are saying everything is bad. And you don't want to give your political opponent any, any brownie points, any credit for doing anything right, because that would be contrary to your long-term political interests. So, and the media is, is a part of it. If it bleeds, it leads. Uh, media plays a huge role in, in this. There is simply no incentive for them to, to, to report on good news because it is bad news that sells. We know that from laboratory experiments. When people who say that they are interested in good news are presented on split screen with good news and bad news, the eyes immediately gravitate toward the bad news because it's much more uh, to the mind which has evolved to focus on the bad news. So, so it's a complicated problem, problem, and and it is a problem. We'll come back, Marion, to the interrelationship between pessimism and, and polarization later in the conversation, but I want to stay on the subject of. Good news. If I can ask about human progress for a minute, which, by the way, I, I strongly recommend listeners follow on social media, I have a few questions that I, that I want to put to you. 
How did you and others conceive of the idea? Where do the different facts and pieces of information come from? And most importantly, what in your view is the most profound proof of human progress? Well, I'll start with what is the most important proof, and that is that um, we are living much longer lives than we used to. I mean, until a couple of hundred years ago, life expectancy was about 30, 35, maybe even 25. And um, that has been like that for tens of thousands of years. And, um, you know, as late as 1900, life expectancy in the richest parts of the world, richest parts of the world was only 50 years. Now, globally, it is 72 years. Uh, in the United States, it was 78 years. Now it has fallen to about 77 because of COVID and a variety of other maladies. But there are places in the world where average life expectancy, like in Japan, is about 80 uh, eight years. So that that's a remarkable increase of lifespan. And lifespan is a good proxy for all sorts of other things, such as good diet, good healthcare, wealth, and so forth. So, so that, that, that tells you something. People have been collecting data throughout the world for a very long time. Around the year 2010 or so, about 20 years ago, 2012, big data became available for free from the World Bank, the IMF, other places. And so, and also graphics became good enough so that you were able to now visualize this big, big data. And the data that we get, except for the work that I do on superabundance, all the other data is basically generated by third parties, World Bank, the IMF, Eurostat, OECD, including individual academics, you know, who people who just do papers and uh, collect the data themselves. And if those come from credible organizations and uh, people, then we put them up. There's a, a rise of a new progress movement following in your footsteps dedicated to the proposition that progress has slowed in the past 40 or 50 years. The, the group is associated with Tyler Cowen's book, The Great Stagnation, or Peter, Peter Thiel's line about how we were promised flying cars and all we got is 140 characters. They are, in other words, fellow dynamists, but have a slightly more negative view about the state of recent progress. What do you think about this development, Marion? And what's your take on their narrative that progress has slowed? Well, I wish I could claim credit for them walking in my footsteps, but I think that we all walk in uh, other people's footsteps. We walk in the footsteps of people like Herman Kahn and uh, Julian Simon, who were the original optimists, uh, rational optimists. I need to emphasize this. We are not blind to problems that humanity is facing today and humanity will be facing in the future. Not at all. Nor are we arguing, and this is absolutely vital, that everything is going to work out. We have a madman in Europe threatening to use nuclear weapons. And there are other problems, possible conflict over Taiwan, and goodness knows what other geopolitical problems that are going to arise out of the economic crisis following the COVID pandemic. So we, we are not blind optimists. I think that the view of the world that we present is uh, realistic and perhaps rationally optimistic in a, in a sense that if politicians leave us alone and we don't kill each other or an asteroid strikes the earth, will be able to continue to improve the world. But, uh, you know, the people who really had the courage and the vision were the people in the 60s and the 70s, people like uh, Simon and Khan and others who who really were the visionaries. They, they thought everything would work out. And they had the courage to go against the 
against the mainstream, which was highly negativistic following Earth Day in 1970 and so forth. And then more recently, you know, people who preceded me, people like Matt Ridley, who, whose book Rational Optimist is, uh, is very important and still worth reading. Uh, Steven Pinker, of course, came up with Enlightenment Now. You have Johann Norberg writing books, uh, Bjorn Lomborg writing books, Michael Schoenberger. And more recently, and a very valuable ad- addition to the movement is uh, Jason Crawford from Roots of Progress, Tyler Cowen too. So there are reasons to be optimistic because smart people, people smarter than I am, are, are catching up to the notion that, that not all is lost, that doom and gloom can, can be incorrect in the future, just as they were incorrect in the past. With regard to the speed of, of innovation, you know, I don't know enough to be able to say whether innovation is definitively, to be able to definitively say whether innovation is increasing or decreasing. In our book, Superabundance, we find that abundance, meaning increased access to resources becoming cheaper, by resources, I mean, fuel, food, minerals, metals, etc., to income are increasing about 3% per year. Is, is that too little or, you know, is it, is it just enough? Well, if you look into human past, people haven't seen improvements in their standards of living sometimes for thousands of years. Right. And now we can, we, we are sort of finding that abundance is increasing at about 3% a year. You know, that's, that to me sounds like progress, but I do acknowledge Peter Thiel's and Tyler Cowen's concern that it could be much higher. Of course, it could be much higher. It could be higher if we had the right regulatory environment rather than crazy over regulate, uh, over regulation. It could be higher if we had good a tax environment rather than spending billions of hours trying to fill out our tax receipts and hiring armies of uh, tax accountants. It could be much higher if instead of making energy more expensive, we were making energy less expensive. It would be much higher for all sorts of reasons. And, and to that end, of course, like Tyler Cowen and like Peter Thiel, I am concerned about the future of innovation. Europe has already embraced the precautionary principle, which is very dangerous because it basically says that you cannot do anything until you prove that it is safe. We have, we have an increasing environment of, of censorship, not just in form of political speech, but also academic research. This is very dangerous because if there are certain areas of research which are off which cannot be touched, then that obviously deprives humanity of additional knowledge. I'm concerned about overregulation of the marketplace because that way you cannot rely on price signals to tell you what's valuable and what's useless. So, and and I'm also concerned, which which is really has arisen from the book, that uh, people will become so dejected about the state of the world that they are going to stop having children. And as a consequence, uh, you know, we are going to face a depopulation problem in the future, which which has a direct impact on economic growth, because it is only human beings who are capable of coming up with ideas which lead to inventions and innovations. That's a good segue to the book, Marion. The idea that the world's resources are becoming scarcer because of a a growing global population is an old one that seems to persist even among informed people. It's something one might hear watching cable news or talking to a coworker or whatever. Why, in your view, is this notion so durable? 
Why, in other words, does a scarcity narrative seem to trump an abundance narrative in our popular discourse? I, I think partly because it's, it, it's deeply intuitive, right? If you just have one pizza pie and uh, you have two people sharing it, then it's wonderful. But if you have four or six or eight, suddenly everybody is going to end up with a, a smaller slice of the pizza. The, the, the problem with the pizza analogy and why this very intuitive approach to population and, and uh, growth is mistaken is, of course, that your friends can bring pizzas with them, right, to the party. And that is exactly what's happening. Human beings are not just consumers of pizza, which is just, you know, an analogy or a synonym for, for, for natural resources. Uh, they also produce us. Every human being comes into the world with an empty stomach, but also with a brain. And so what we are discovering, what we have discovered in the book is that every 1% increase in uh, human population decreases prices of resources by about 1%. Well, how is that possible? That's possible because uh, human beings come up with ideas which result in making resources more abundant. What are those ideas? Well, one, the most obvious one is efficiency. A Coke can used to weigh three ounces of tin, now it's weighing half an ounce of tin. Human beings can uh, discover new deposits of resources. You know, today we have higher levels or higher known reserves of oil than we did in 1900, even though we've been using oil and gas for the last 120 years. Another thing is, of course, that we can recycle. The world has exactly the same amount of atoms that it did when the, when the caveman was around, right? Our resources, as Thomas Sowell, the great American economist said, are exactly the same that the caveman had. But the difference be between our standard of living and his standard of living is the knowledge. And, 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 and in fact, the world has a finite number of atoms, but, but, you know, you may tie certain atoms of copper into wires. But they haven't disappeared. They are still there. And when a new and a better techno technology comes, comes around so that we no longer need to put copper in wires, we'll be able to take that copper and use it in different ways. And another way in which um, human brains make resources more abundant is, of course, we substitute things for others. Uh, we no longer kill whales in order to make our candles. We now use natural gas to power our, our electric plants, to power our light bulbs. So we can also substitute one thing for another. You see, the thing is that whenever humanity starts using a product, like for example, right now we are using lithium ion in order to create batteries for electric vehicles, the human brain thinks, okay, so we are going to need this many vehicles for this many people, and we know of this much lithium, and therefore we are going to run out of it at a certain stage. But who is to say that in 50 years' time, we are still going to be using lithium in order to create our electric car batteries? It could be something completely different. And, and I think that's what people underappreciate. They underappreciate that the technology part of the equation is dynamic. It changes all the time with human input of new ideas and innovations. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca and sign up for our daily email newsletter per diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors. 
all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. As you've alluded to so far in our our conversation, Marion, in order to challenge the scarcity narrative, you and your co-author don't merely make rhetorical or theoretical arguments. The book, like the website Human Progress, is highly empirical. Help me and our listeners understand what time prices are and how are they relevant to the case for abundance? Usually resources are measured in real prices. Your listeners are familiar with nominal and real prices. They are very easy to understand. A nominal price is what you see in the shop today. When you walk in, you want to buy a loaf of bread. That's the nominal price. Nominal just means right now. It's it's the money price. But of course, we all know, especially now in the environment of inflation, that you have to adjust for inflation to get a sense of what happened to the to, to prices over a long period of time. So, so to get a sense whether something really has become more expensive or not, you have to be over a period of 10 years, you have to adjust for inflation, right? So people are familiar with real prices and nominal prices. The drawback of nominal and real price is they are looking only at what is happening to the price of a good or commodity or a service. They are not looking at what is happening to your, to the money in your wallet. And this is a crucial drawback of nominal and real prices because human innovation gets translated or, or, or manifests itself both in falling prices of goods and services, but also in higher human wages. So when you started de- delivering papers or having a lemonade stand, you know, when you were eight years old, you were earning a few pennies, right? But now that you are an accomplished individual, you are earning much more money. What does that mean? You become much more productive and therefore your salary has increased during your lifetime. And the same goes for our species. We are much richer per capita in real terms than we used to be because humanity is much more productive. So time prices mercifully are able to combine both what is happening to the prices of goods and commodities, but also to what is happening to wages. Let me give you one example. If a Hershey bar, let's say you are now in 1980, who was the prime minister in 1980 in, 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 in Canada? In 1980, it was Pierre Trudeau. So Ronald Reagan is about to become president of the United States. Pierre Trudeau is pre- prime minister of Canada. And let's say that a Hershey bar costs you one Canadian dollar and you are earning $10 an hour. That means that the time price of a, that you can get 10 Hershey bars for an hour of labor. Okay. Now, let's assume that you are now in 2022. Justin Trudeau is the prime minister, for better or for worse, and the Hershey bar now costs $2 a, a bar, right? But in the meantime, your wage has increased to $30 an hour. And that means that now you can get 15 Hershey bars. And that's basically what a time price is. It translates everything into minutes and hours of labor. Instead of having to work, I don't know, seven minutes for a Hershey bar, now you have to work four minutes to buy a Hershey bar. And 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 beauty, as I said, of time prices is that it allows you to account both for, both for prices of goods and services, but also it accounts for the rise in wages. That's number one. Number two, 
you don't have to worry about inflation at all. We don't account for it. We don't worry about it. We don't care whether people agree or disagree on a certain definition of inflation. We don't care whether inflation is 10% or 100%. We only care about the ratio between the price of a good and the wage. Another reason why time price is good is because it's deeply egalitarian concept. Everybody has 24 hours in a day. So the less time you have to work in order to earn something, the more time you have to spend playing sports or spending time with your family, that sort of thing. Also, time is incorruptible for normal purposes, unless you are thinking about theory of relativity. Time is a constant, right? And so for, for our purpose, time is just an incorruptible constant unit. Another thing about time prices is that it allows you to compare internationally without having to convert from dollars, from American dollars to Canadian dollars or Indian rupees. A minute of time in Canada is the same as a minute of time in the United States. So if a Hershey bar costs a Canadian five minutes of labor and American four minutes of labor, we can say that an American is better off. Another reason why time prices are a very good way of thinking about things is that they allow you to compare your living standards across time. We can compare American living standards in 2022 to American living standards in 1980. If it costs you an hour to earn a pound of beef in 18, 1850, but now it costs you only 30 minutes, you are 50% better off. So time prices are actually a very useful way in which to look at standards of living across time, across countries, and so forth. I want to take up a, another important idea in the book, and it, it may be the most counterintuitive one. That is, more people is actually good to address climate change. What's the connection here, Marion? Why are the degrowthers wrong that we should stop having children in order to minimize our collective burden on the planet? The great French economic historian, Fernand Braudel, said that ultimately everything is technology. What separates us from the caveman is technology, which is just a synonym for knowledge. Okay. You can think of knowledge, technology, and innovation as, and, and standards of living as being synonymous. And climate change, the state of the global environment can be addressed through technological change in the same way that other things in the world can be addressed through technological change, such as, well, I mean, let's, let's take one example. Right now, by far, the best way to power human civilization is natural gas. It's cheap. It's relatively clean. But let's say that you have an absolute abhorrence of natural gas that you just cannot stomach possibly having human civilization powered by natural gas. Well, we also have an eight-year-old technology. It's called nuclear power, which doesn't produce any uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. So that could be a solution to, to our problems. But what is nuclear power? Nuclear power is an outcome of human minds, human innovation. The same goes for fusion. There have been in recent years some very exciting developments in fusion technology, and I hope that we get there and can make it affordable. And now, if that happens, then that's an even safer way of producing plentiful energy for human species without producing any CO2 into the atmosphere. What is fusion? Fusion is knowledge. Fusion is technology. Fusion is innovation. How does this, how does the, how, how is this connected to population? Well, it's, well, it's very simple. There is a small fraction of humans of any size who actually innovate. We are not all innovators. I wish we were, but we are not. Studies suggest that it's somewhere in the neighborhood between three, maybe 6%. So let's assume that only 5% of human population innovates anything in their entire lives. Well, if that's the case, then of course, a population of 14 million people, which is how many people there were in the world 
when the Bronze Age, Bronze Age started in 3000 BC, then that population, 5% of 14 million, is much smaller than 5% of 8 billion. So with every billion of additional human beings, we are getting tens of millions of people who are capable and willing to innovate and come up with solution to, to human problems. So the bigger the population, the more brains who are willing and, and capable of, of innovating out, our way out, the, out of the problems. At its core, the book is something of an ode to Schumpeter's insight about creative destruction. Yet a lot of voices, Marion, including on the right, seem to be questioning the social benefits of such dynamism. They point to the, quote, destructive part of the process, including deindustrialization, job losses, community decline, and so on. Why are they wrong? What are they missing? Well, yes, you've zeroed in on a very important point, and that is the distinction between Smithian growth and, and Schumpeterian growth. Smithian growth is important. It's about division of labor. It's about free trade. Uh, and that's a very important part of the global economy. But Schumpeterian growth is driven by innovation and especially sustained innovation, which is, which is the world that we have lived in over the past 200 years. And yes, on both left and right, you have voices that, that are not particularly keen on new technological developments. Uh, one very famous American TV show host uh, was recently asked whether he would ban autonomous trucks because they would put truckers out of work. And he says that, yes, in a heartbeat. And, and, and the problem with that, of course, is that the whole point of creative destruction and the whole point of productivity gains is that we always try to accomplish more with less. Cheaper the input, so the smaller the input, the bigger the output. That's the that's, that's definition of productivity gain, right? Now, Obviously, there, there's no way of getting around the fact that every time you have a new innovation, some people get displaced and have to look for work somewhere else. Now, when it comes to truckers, who I know are a very important part of the Canadian economy, autonomous trucks wouldn't happen overnight. It would probably be a process over a very long period of time, during which time people can retrain or look for other careers. Other careers will open because, of course, every time that you are saving money in the production process, that money has to flow into creation of jobs in other parts of the economy, right? So it's not like that. That I mean, that's the essence of a growing economy, right? Is that <laughs> in, instead of spending uh, fifty thousand or eighty thousand Canadian dollars paying a trucker to to drive around the country for a year, you can now have an autonomous vehicle, but you are saving eighty thousand dollars, which can then be applied to something else in the economy, grow the economy in some 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 other place. And let's not forget that this kind of concern would have been had by people throughout history. For example, when computers replaced uh, when computers replaced typing machines, hundreds of thousands of secretaries, you know, were displaced because they were no longer needed. Bosses could now simply send an email from their desktop computer rather than dictate to to their secretaries. Um, you can take it even further. And the opposition of people in the Ottoman Empire to printed books, this was driven primarily by scribes who were faced with redundancies once you had printed books. And as a result of which, the Ottoman Empire got printed books much later than Europe. 
Similarly, in uh, Venice, there was massive opposition to the introduction of Arabic numerals because Roman numerals were much more complex and needed many more people to try to calculate them than, than Arabic numerals. So, so throughout human history, there was always this problem that, that whenever you have a new technology, somebody, somebody is getting to, going to get it in the neck and that's not pleasant. But then there raises a question, when should we have stopped? Should we have stopped before the introduction of, of Arabic numerals? Should we have stopped before the introduction of, of, of printed books in order to save the scribes? Uh, ultimately, ultimately, the, the, the argument in favor of what I'm arguing is that, is that through this productivity gain process, through increasing productivity in the economy, you are making everybody better off in the long run. There are also voices similarly, including on the right, who argue that the West needs to adopt the Chinese model of central planning in order to keep up in terms of technological progress and industrial development. Why are they wrong? Well, because the Chinese have done a great job in terms of mimicking our economic growth and our technology up till now. The big question is whether China is capable of producing new knowledge in a country which is clamping down on intellectual and economic freedom. So it's one thing to mimic or mirror economic development in the West, which is what China has been doing, you know, building roads and new cities and hospitals and universities and what have you since economic liberalization. But, but the key is that future progress depends on generation of new knowledge, which you can only get on a large scale in, in a, uh, in a free society, you know, that there was some scientific growth in the Soviet Union, but under communism, but that was usually done in a very narrow area, which was military uh, development. And let's not forget that Russian scientists always had a much higher degree of freedom than other Russians did precisely because even the Soviet communists understood that to generate economic growth, you need to allow people a, a level of intellectual freedom. And China is moving in the opposite direction. Uh, since 2012, she has been clamping down on, uh, on innovation in the marketplace. She's been clamping down on the private sector, on economic freedom, and also on intellectual freedom. In a, in a situation like that, you, you, you cannot, I don't think, in the long run, breach the gap between the West and, and where China is today. So GDP per capita on average, I think it's a household income in the United States is about $67,000, $70,000. In China, it is $10,000. To get from $10,000 to $70,000, you, you cannot get that without, without generating your own knowledge, without, without freedom. I want to come back to something you raised earlier about the political economy implications of the persistence of this scarcity narrative. How much, in your view, Marion, are our current political tensions fundamentally about a zero-sum understanding of the economy and society? In other words, is an abundance narrative an antidote to modern-day political polarization? So this is a complicated subject, and I'm not a specialist in this. I, I'm not a political scientist by any stretch of imagination. But George Will, the famed American commentator in Washington Post, likes to say that the difference between America in despair and a happy America is the difference between 2% annual growth rate and a 3% annual growth rate. Because the difference between 2% annual growth rate and 3% annual growth rate is actually 50%, right? <laughs> so, so yes, obviously, the slower the growth, the more zero-sum the society 
becomes because if you are accustomed to your you know your your annual increases and the economy grows at a slow pace then it has to come out of pockets of somebody else somebody else has to get a smaller raise and and to the extent that our government is making it more difficult for the economy to flourish and for the economy to grow then of course they are the ones who are responsible for or the political polarization. It is, um, you know, I read recently that Europe is facing the outcome of, uh, Europe is facing a crisis because of climate, but not climate change, but climate policies. Climate change has not created an energy crisis in Europe. It was climate policies, the insane policies which the Europeans have implemented over the last 20 years, which have massively increased energy. They became, they became dependent on Russia, and now their economies are collapsing because energy is too expensive. But that was a political decision. We have to make it absolutely clear that there is nothing about capitalist economy or nothing about global resources which are preventing us from growing at a faster pace. This was a political decision made by mad people who run Ottawa and Washington and London and Berlin. The point of the book is that there are no physical constraints on growth. There are no physical constraints because we have exactly the same number of atoms that the Stone Age man had. And ideas which can turn finite resources into infinite value, ideas are not subject to physical laws. They are not. They are, they are not. That they can, uh, we can have as many ideas as we want, right? So, so yes. I, I would say that I blame politics first. Let's wrap up by, by looking forward. You've been a champion of progress, as you mentioned earlier, for more than a decade, and you've been out promoting the book Superabundance now for, for some weeks. Do you have a sense that things are changing? Is there reason to believe, Marion, that there is some momentum behind an abundance narrative? I think it's too early to tell, but I'm cautiously optimistic because I see a lot more smart people embracing the abundance agenda. Only yesterday I learned that Derek Thompson from The Atlantic and Ezra Klein from New York Times are going to write their own book on abundance, more power to them. They come from center left. It's probably going to be a very different book from, from mine, which is, you know, I'm a libertarian coming from a libertarian think tank. But when you even have the center left embracing what they call supplied side progressivism, then it's better than if they didn't embrace supply-side progressivism, if you see what I mean. Well, the, the book is Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. Marion Tupi from the Cato Institute, thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>